go to the heavenly throne. Father, we praise and thank you for this wonderful privilege that you have provided for us, yet in a free country, to assemble here today so we can open your holy word to discuss the one subject that should get every believer in Jesus Christ excited. And that subject, of course, is heaven and our eternal lives there with you and the Lamb, the Lord, and all the believers of all the ages and all the holy angels. And as we look at this, may, this study, may we be reminded that absolutely everything we do in this life should be geared toward the day that we shall behold our Lord Savior face to face. I know that right now, in the here and now, it is beyond our limited human capacity to imagine all that you have prepared for us, as you promise. But may you today, by your Holy Spirit, give us a glimpse of the wonders that await us there. May what you have revealed through your word about heaven cause us to realign those priorities in our lives that may have gotten out of focus, especially here at this busy time of the year, so that we indeed do set our affection on things above and not on things here below, and that we again realize the truth that life is short and your return is imminent. And we need to be redeeming our time wisely for the furtherance of your kingdom. We need to be laying up treasures above. And the greatest treasure of all are the souls of people. So, Father, I boldly and humbly ask that you would draw, your spirit would draw and convict every soul among us who has never personally received Christ into her heart as the Savior, the one and only Savior who died for her sin so she could receive his righteousness and spend eternity in your holy presence. And I also ask that these lessons would be an encouragement to your people to not grow weary in well-doing, to not allow Satan to rob us of our joy, to keep our eyes focused like Abraham on that celestial city ahead, and to keep pressing forward, running the race that you have individually orchestrated for each of us. Because we have the sure and blessed hope of heaven awaiting us. Father, may I speak truth with the proper balance of boldness and love today. And if I should offend with the truth, I cannot say that I'm sorry because I know it is the truth that sets people free, free of their sin and their bondage to sin and death, and assures them of heaven. But if I do that without love, then I am sorry, and I ask your forgiveness, because you are love, and it truly is my heart's desire for these women to sense and to know your love for each of them. May it be your love that draws them to you, either in salvation or in a deeper desire to serve and glorify you until the day you call us home. And may now the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts collectively truly be pleasing and acceptable to you because they bring glory and honor to that name which is above every name, the name of Jesus, in whose name we do ask these things. All God's people said... 
Amen. From the divinely inspired pen of King Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3.11, I have the verse up there so you can see, we are told that God has written eternity in the human heart. He created us with what we could call sort of a sixth sense. We have a sixth sense that, that innately tells us, causes us to know that we exist for something more than this brief life on earth. And the older you get and you look back, the briefer, I mean, it's just like a vapor, right? You say, where did all those years go? So we know that, you know, there is something beyond this life. And is there? Yes. Because he created us to live forever with him. In a place that we best know as heaven. So the purpose of our double teaching session today uh, is to discuss heaven as per one source and one source only, the scripture. I'm not going to look at what hymns teach us or what Bible picture books teach us or what you've heard from your grandma or what all these books that are out there about heaven. You can go to a bookstore and find a million books on heaven and they tell you they can get, really get you all mixed up. We're going to look only at scripture. Why is that? Because it's the only book ever written divinely inspired by God. And it's the only true source. And it, we believe it is our final authority for our faith and our practice. Not a man-made religion, nothing else, the word of God. Now the word heaven in Hebrew is shamim. And in Greek it's urano. It is found between 500 and 700 times in the scripture. But it does not always refer to the place that we call heaven, basically, our eternal home, God's dwelling place. Sometimes it refers to the atmospheric heavens that surround the earth, you know, where the clouds are and the fowls of the heavens. Sometimes it refers to the stellar heavens, the vast multitude of stars and galaxies out there in the universe, such as in Psalm 19:1, where it says the heavens declare the glory of God. And sometimes it is used to speak of the third heaven, the residence of God. And it is also referred to in many other ways in the scripture. It's not always just called heaven. Some other names for heaven are the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven, the new Jerusalem, paradise, the father's house. I like that one. That makes it sound really homey, doesn't it? The holy city, the city of God, the city of the living God, the celestial city, and the new Jerusalem, the final phase of heaven. The biblical context you know, you always have to look at a word in scripture in its context. So it is the context that makes it easy for us to know which heavenly realm is implied. Someone rightly said that we see the first heaven, you know, the atmospheric heaven, by day. We look up, we see the birds and the clouds by day. The second heaven, which is the stars and the galaxies, we see when? 
by night, and the third heaven we see by we see by faith. And that is the third heaven is the topic for our subject today. Contrary to the vast amount of erroneous information about heaven, it is not a non-literal, allegorical, dreamy, pie-in-the-sky, mythological-based concept. Uh, sometimes you picture Bugs Bunny up there on a cloud playing a harp from an old cartoon. <laughs> Um, or cherubs, you know, flying around with their little harps. Always, a, that's why I had Noel, my granddaughter, play the harp because we always associate harps with. You think we'll play harps in heaven? Probably. I'd like to learn how to play all the instruments, wouldn't you? Oh yeah. Um, it's not even a, a place where there's no sense of self, which is taught like through nirvana. You know, they say, well, you just lose your total identity and you go into nirvana. It's absolutely a real place, a real place. You know, when Jesus promised his followers in John chapter 14 that he was going to go and prepare a place for them in his father's house, you know the Greek word he used for place is topon. Topon is the word from which we get topography. It is, topography is, is the scientific term for the study of the forms and features of literal land surfaces. If he created this world, it's not very difficult for him to create another world very similar that is literal. And Jesus said, literal place. He used a word that meant that. And then I love this. He said, if it were not so, I would have told you. You know, there's one thing God cannot do, and Jesus Christ is God. He is the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. Triune Godhead, all God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One thing God cannot do is lie, and his word never returns to him void. So he said, if it weren't true, I would have told you. And he's also called in the scripture faithful and true. Also, contrary to the belief of most people, heaven, even though it is available, freely available to all people, it is not the final destiny of all people. You know, it's too late if you think that you, you're, they're going to preach you into heaven at your funeral. And a lot of people, they do try to preach into heaven at their funerals. But if they haven't accepted Christ before they die, that's just... Sad. It's sad. There is a mandatory password for your heavenly reservation. And it is not a secret. You know how we hide our passwords to our computer and everything. We don't let our grandchildren or anybody know about it. This password is not to be kept a secret by anyone who knows what it is. It's one to be shared with everybody. Although sadly, multitudes of people hate this password. And they refuse to use it. You know what the password is? You got it up there. <laughs> I can have a screen too in case you wonder what I'm looking at. The password is the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word 
was God. And then the word became flesh. That's what we celebrate this time of year. And dwelt among us. He is the past word, Jesus. The word God incarnate, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Is that narrow-minded? Absolutely. But throughout scripture, we've always been taught there's only one way. Remember the one ladder to, to, to heaven, Jacob's dream? The one door into the ark? The one way into the Garden of Eden? The one door into the Holy of Holies of the temple? I mean, over and over again. Truth is narrow, folks. Lies are out there in abundance. But truth is narrow. For example, I always use this one because it's easy. How much is 2 plus 2? Is it 17? No, there's only one answer. Truth is narrow. The right answer is 4. He also said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, what? Yet shall he live. John eleven twenty five. And he spoke the words of John 3, 3. <clears throat> Except, and he said before that, verily, verily. And when Jesus says verily, verily, you listen up because that means this is really important. Everything he says is important, but a verily, verily, or a truly, truly is really important. This is the most, one of the most important things he ever said. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, a physical birth, apart from a spiritual birth, does not get anyone into the kingdom of God because of the inherited sin nature that we all have from Adam. We've inherited a sin nature. But I'll tell you what, we also choose to be sinners. If we were in his place, we would have sooner or later also sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Heaven's citizens are those whose sins are completely washed away. Not just covered like in the Old Testament, anticipating Christ's coming when he would completely cleanse them away. Today, heaven's citizens have been completely, sins washed away forever, forgiven, because they accept by faith Christ's sin substitutionary death on their behalf on the cross. And they are therefore born again by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in and gives you a new birth. You become a new creature in Christ. The good news is, the really, really good news, and that's why it is called the gospel. Gospel means good news. The good news is that salvation is absolutely free. If I give you a Christmas gift, I don't want money for it. It's a gift. It's free. And it is available for all, and it is very simple to understand. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's so simple, a little child can understand it. So the password to heaven is Jesus. If you have called on Jesus, repented of your sins, called on him to save you, um, then I've got good news for you. You are already, you have already received eternal life because he is eternal life. He is a source of life. He is eternal life. It even says that in 
first epistle of John, that Jesus Christ is eternal life. So if you've received him, move the knowledge of him down 18 inches from just head knowledge to heart knowledge. Invited him into your heart. He knocks at the door. You open the door. He says, I will come in. Then you are already a citizen of heaven. Uh, positionally. One day we'll be there practically, but today we are already citizens of heaven. And guess what else? You do not need to fear death. That is what brought me to the Lord. I was so afraid of dying. I, would, I did not know what would happen to me when I died, and I couldn't sleep at night. I still have that problem, but for different reasons. <laughs> um, but I couldn't sleep at night because I thought, what would happen if I die? And I really, I mean, Solomon, again, Solomon said, death is a very wise teacher. Because when somebody seriously starts thinking of death, which they should, because it's imminent, and so far everybody has died, except for um, Elijah and Elisha, who was the other one? Enoch, Enoch, and the generation of the rapture. But um, you don't have to, what I was going to say is, once you accept Christ, you do not have to fear death ever again. Because to be absent from the body is what? To be instantly present with the Lord. Your soul, as you see in this picture, your soul immediately leaves this old outer shell and is present with the Lord. So you don't need to fear death. Your body, they call Jesus, and the Bible calls it sleep. But we don't believe in soul sleep. Your soul goes to be with the Lord. Your body goes to sleep for a while until you hear the trumpet and it too will be resurrected and join your soul and you'll be whole in heaven and it will be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And we'll talk about the resurrected body a little bit later. The greatest human theologian to ever live, besides of course the Lord Jesus Christ, was the Apostle Paul. And do you know how he viewed death? How did he view death? with great anticipation. As the older you get, you kind of start really anticipating it, don't you? You look for, I mean, the more people you know that are up there, and of course you want to see the Lord, and this old body starts to really hurt, you start really looking forward to heaven. He looked forward to heaven with great anticipation. Do you know why? Because he understood the scripture. That man knew his scripture inside out. He had also heard from the Lord on the road to Damascus. That's pretty awesome. The Lord talked to him from, you know, Paul, Saul, Saul. And he said, what would you have me to do, Lord? And he gave his whole life to the Lord after that. And then he spent three years in the desert being taught by the Lord. So he knew what he was talking about. He, he was ready to go to be with his Lord. He was anticipating heaven. That's why he could say, for to me to live is Christ. How would you feel that in if you said, for me to live is finishing out the Christmas season, decorating my house or my children? For Paul, it was for me to live is Christ. That's my center focus is glorifying him with my life. And then he said what? And to die is gain. In that same passage in Philippians, he said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, far better. 
And the Greek word he used for his departure in, in uh, that verse and also again in 2 Timothy 4, 6 is analusis. I am Greek, so I give you Greek words. But it's important to know the original word. Okay? And you know what analusis means? He used that for departure. It means loosening, to loosen. And it was a word very commonly used back in Paul's day. To, I'll give you some examples of how it was used. It was referred to um, an ox being loosed from its yoke after having finished a heavy day's work. It was also used um, of tent stakes when you would pull the tent stakes out of the ground in preparation for a journey. Or of a ship being loosed from the dock so that it could sail away. And it was also used when a prisoner was unchained from his confinement. Isn't that interesting? You know how the Lord Jesus, and I think it was Peter, how both of those spoke of their departure as their exodus. Exodus. They were going to exit this world, exit their bodies temporarily to go where? Where did the Israelites go after the exodus? to the promised land. So they referred, you know, when he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, they were talking about his exodus. Also, at that trans transfiguration, you know what the word for transfiguration means? When Jesus unveiled his inner glory before Peter, James, and John, that word transfiguration is where we get the word metamorphosis. And what do you think of what creature did God give us as an example of that? A butterfly becomes a cocoon, you know, it's a worm, and it wraps itself, and it basically looks like it's dead and whatever. But then, amazing, that is a miracle. Out comes a beautiful butterfly. That's how Jesus referred, that's how the transfiguration is referred to. What we call death is a transitional loosening. It is what frees us from being yoked to our confined uh, dying, progressively dying body in a dark, dark prison of this world. This world is like a, almost like a prison. You know, Satan is the usurped god of this world. It is, and it's getting darker and darker, isn't it? Evil men are waxing worse and worse. Uh, so it's, it's loosening us from from our body, from our yoke, so that, and also so that we can, like the, the boats, we can set sail to a world of eternal light and eternal life spent with the one who did loose us, loosen us. Like Abraham and like Paul, we should all be focused on heaven because it's not only God's will that we do so, it is actually his command to Christians. Colossians 1-2 tells believers that we are to seek those things that are where? Above. To set our affection on those things that are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Heaven should be at the center of our world focus. We should be redeeming our time wisely. You hear that? Are you wasting your life and your time on something that isn't going to count for eternity. 
Redeem your time wisely. Lay up treasures in heaven where they last. Down here they don't last. We're going to talk about global warming in a minute. Uh, Whatever we do, the scripture says, whatever we do, word or deed, should all be done with eternity in view to bring glory to that name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. And both Paul and Peter remind us that the sufferings of this present world, and we all, we all have issues in our, I mean, I haven't ever met anybody who doesn't have some drama going on in their life. If you don't, you will. But there are a lot of sufferings in this present time, but they tell us that they're not worthy. What we go through down, and by the way, they, they were Southern, for I reckon, you get that? No. For I reckon. <laughs> That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared, no matter what you go through. And this is Paul writing this, and he went through a lot. But no matter what you go through, it can't even be compared this much to the glory which shall be revealed in us, um, in, in heaven. In fact, that glory is unimaginable. And again, this is confirmed by scripture because what does Paul tell us? And he had a glimpse of the third heaven. He wasn't allowed to write about it. But what did he tell us about it? I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. So it goes beyond our imagination what awaits us. Well, going back to Christ's words in John 14, uh, where he said that he was going to go to his father's house to prepare dwelling places for his followers, which would include us. Think about that promise for a minute. That promise of heaven um, tells us something about heaven, and it is that heaven changes. How? Well, there were going to be, after he resurrected and returned to heaven, there were going to be dwelling places for saved humans that had never been true of heaven before that, before his atonement work for man on the cross. Now, this might be a little surprising, but not what I'm going to say next isn't surprising. God never changes. You know that. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But his creation does change. His creation changes. Just think about um, the angels, the holy angels. They changed. That's, they were his creation. You had all holy angels, and then all of a sudden you had a third that were fallen angels. Think about man. You started out with innocent man. He went to fallen man because of sin. And then we can become a new man in Christ, can't we? Positionally speaking, and one day we will become a whole new man, person, practically, when we're in heaven. Uh, so his, he doesn't change. And also, there was a perfect earth. Then there was a fallen earth. Then there was a post-flood earth. Same earth, but it changed. You know, the post-flood earth is a whole lot different than the original earth. That's where we get all the mountains and the oceans and everything was after the flood. And then there's going to be a millennial earth. And then there's going to be an entirely new earth. So God doesn't change, but his creation does 
change, and that includes even his dwelling place. His dwelling place, what we call heaven, is a divine work in progress. If you go from Genesis to Revelation, we find a, num a number of changes in his eternal dwelling place. Um, for one thing, it's changed almost every second because somewhere on this planet, a believer dies and their soul is immediately added to heaven. So that's a change to heaven. You get, are you following me? So let's look at some of the changes to heaven. First of all, there was what I call the pre-creation heaven. It consisted only of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It was the only one, they were the only ones in heaven. They were heaven, I guess. Then God created the holy angels. So this is the creation of angels, heaven. Who lived there? Well, the triune God with all the holy angels. Then there was the post-angelic fall, heaven. Who lived there? The Trinity and only the holy angels. Lucifer and the third of angels that fell with him in his rebellion against God were no longer in heaven, so heaven changed. Then you have the um, pre-human fall, before Adam and Eve fell, you have the pre-human fall paradise heaven on earth, the Edenic heaven, where innocent Adam and Eve, not righteous Adam, but innocent, they were not righteous. They were not declared righteous but because they, they didn't know good and evil. They were innocent, completely innocent. They fellowshiped with God. Now, God still lived in the third heaven, but he would come down when in the cool of the day and he would fellowship with Adam in the paradise Edenic heaven on earth. Then you have the post this is going to be the most difficult part of the study today, all right? So <laughs> hang in there. You have the post-human fall, pre-death and resurrection of Christ heaven. Where did all the Old Testament saints, now when I say saint, it isn't just someone that a church has called, declared a saint. A saint in the Bible is a believer, Every, when I first learned that, because I grew up Greek Orthodox, when I, somebody called me a saint, I said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> but now I like it. Okay, I'm saying Saint Catherine. Um, but we're all, we're all saints, if you know the Lord Jesus. But uh, this, what, where did all the souls of believers or saints go from the time of Adam to the very last, which might have been the thief on the cross, I don't know, the, the last uh, Old Testament pre-resurrection of Christ soul go when they died that was a long sentence where did their souls go to paradise not up in the third heaven no one yet was completely cleansed of their sins until after Christ died so they couldn't be in the presence of God until after his death and his atonement but then but until then they were in the paradise section of Hades now that sounds awful, doesn't it? But Hades actually meant the place of the dead. And there were two sections there. One was really Hades, or what we call hell. And the other one was called paradise. Remember he said to the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That thief didn't stay there very long. 
He went to paradise, then Christ came and took captivity captive, which means after they were all cleansed because of his sin atonement work, he emptied the paradise section and took the souls of all those Old Testament believers with him into the third heaven because now they could be in the presence of holy God. That place is also known as Abraham's bosom. Then there is the post-Christ resurrection heaven post Christ after this is the heaven where we would go today if we died the third heaven um, and who lives there well the trinity all the holy angels the old test the souls of the old testament saints the souls of the church age saints and the yet future souls of the tribulation saints, those who will die during the time of the Antichrist and the tribulation, most of them will be martyred for their faith. This is the third heaven where we go today. Then there is the kingdom of Christ on earth heaven. Uh, and that is when he returns after the tribulation, the Lord with all of his, you know, will be with him. He will return. And what will he establish here on this earth? A 1,000 year kingdom. That is a heaven on earth kind of kingdom. But the saints will, this is confusing, will live in the new Jerusalem which will be hovered above the earthly Jerusalem. It's kind of like most think it'll be hovered above. We will be there in our resurrected bodies and we'll probably be able to come down to earth and go back, but that will be our home. Those who live on the earth during the millennial kingdom will be believers who in human bodies come out of the tribulation. They, they're believers, so they go right into the millennial kingdom. If you're confused, don't worry about it. Go get my books on Revelation and get it all straightened out. I try, what I try to do is I try to give simple for, the, for new believers. I try to make it as simple as I can. And then I throw in some meat here and there for those of you who have been in the Word for a while and you can follow me. Um, so those are the different phases. Oh, and then there's one more. And that's what we'll discuss in our second session today. The new Jerusalem that I said was hovering above. When the new earth is created, this earth is going to pass away and there's going to be a brand new earth and it will be wholly perfect, then God's holy city can come and actually dwell on this earth. And we will have access to not just the holy city, but the whole earth. And that earth is going to be just as real as this earth. Okay? Just as real. If he created this one, he can create a new one. He is God. Who's going to live in the new Jerusalem on the new earth? the Holy Trinity, all the holy angels, and all the resurrected believers of all the ages. Old Testament, New Testament, church age, tribulation age, and millennial age. So heaven is not yet as it will be. It is only when heaven, the new Jerusalem, literally exists on the new earth that the Lord will then make his final announcement of a completed work. And you know there are four such divine announcements made in the scripture, beginning, number one, with the announcement of his completed, original, creative work. You know, after he created the heavens and the earth and all that are on them, in Genesis 2.1, it says he was finished. He, he, he was done. 
That's the first divine announcement, and it was regarding his creation work. And then we have Christ's famous saying from the cross, his cross declaration of John 19.30, when he said, and this is my favorite word in all the Bible, it's one word in Greek, and what is it? Te telestai. It is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He was just beginning. It is finished. What was that? That was the completion of his salvation work. In Revelation 16, 17, a great voice is heard from heaven. It is the great voice of God, and he proclaims, it is done. What is done? The completion of his judgment work. And then one more time, the fourth and final time, that uh, the words, it is done, will reverberate across the universe will be when God announces the consummation of his re-creative work of the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom of God, at last, will be complete and all other kingdoms will be destroyed. Though It will be the answer to the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer really, we should call it. The will of God will be forevermore done on earth, the new earth, as it is in heaven. Because the two will be one. You know what it will be? It will be a marriage of heaven and earth. Heaven will come down to earth. The two shall be one. And interestingly, speaking of marriage... The history of man, there is a thread of marriage that goes throughout the whole Bible. You know, there's a scarlet thread of the blood that goes through. There's all kinds of continuing stories that, that you could pick up, and so many of them, analogies that go throughout the Bible. This is another one, marriage. The history of man began <clears throat> with God creating the institution of marriage. Did you hear me? Who created the institution of marriage? Who? So who has the final say on what it should be? What it is? God. What did he do? Well, first of all, <clears throat> he put Adam, the first Adam, he's called in scripture, the son of God with a small s. He put him to sleep. That's a picture of death. He put him to sleep and probably blood was shed because he was flesh and blood. Put him to sleep, blood was shed from his side in order to obtain a bride for him from his own side. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You know what the very first birthday present was, anybody? What was the very first birthday present? Eve. She was given to Adam on his birthday. So, you know, if, if I've heard people say, well, it's not very good to to celebrate birthdays. Um, there's some religions that believe that, don't celebrate birthdays. Well, it's biblical, and it's also biblical to give presents. So um, I'll tell you when my birthday is, and you can give me presents. <laughs> no, the very first birthday, because he got, he, he received Eve on the day of his birth. Um, and who gave him that first birthday present? God, and he didn't give him Steve. He gave him Eve. Well, besides the physical um, reasons God had for, for the institution of marriage. Wait a minute, let me go back. I don't want to jump the gun. 
Um, he had physical reasons because man needed a helpmate. Um, the woman needed a protector. Children need a family. You know, God's very big on the family unit, which is why today they're trying to destroy all these things. Um, and also for reproduction. Those are the physical reasons. But his primary reason for marriage was to spiritually picture the relationship that he desires with his people. You know, the Old Testament is actually a long history of his marriage relationship with Israel. Read the book of Hosea. It didn't go too well. God was always faithful, though, wasn't he? God was always faithful. The New Testament is not only about how the second Adam, the son with a capital S of God, the son of God, died and shed his blood, you know, blood came pouring out of his side to obtain his bride, the church. But the New Testament then is about their ongoing relationship all the way until the consummation of their marriage in heaven. In fact, Christ's first earthly miracle. It wasn't a coincidence that it was at a marriage ceremony in Cana. His first miracle had to do with returning the joy to a marriage. The wine had run out. The wine symbolically pictured the joy. It also symbolically pictured the joy of Israel. Their joy had run out in their relationship with God. So that miracle, that very first miracle, first institution in the Bible was marriage. First miracle of Jesus was, had to do with a marriage. That, it gives us a spiritual picture of why he came to earth. Why did he come to earth? To return the joy of the marriage relationship between God and his people. Those who are willing to say to him, I do. When he says, come unto me. And when he proposes to you. And you say, I do and I will. Well, there's another marriage analogy at the end of scripture. When in Revelation chapter 21, an angel shows the apostle John a prophetic vision of the new Jerusalem coming down to be forever joined on the new earth. <laughs> um, now at that time when the new Jerusalem comes, this is after the millennial kingdom, and the creation of the new earth, when she comes down, her citizens, those living in that holy city of heaven, will consist of all the saved, of all the ages, all the resurrected saved of all the ages. So don't just think the new Jerusalem is the church. We'll talk about that more. All the saints will dwell in her. And she is described by John as a gorgeous, pristine bride. You see, this is God's ultimate plan, to come down and live with his people in the realm that he will recreate for us. It will be a marriage in which death will never do us part and no man can put us under. And that is the end of recorded scripture. But, as C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Last Battle, 
it's only going to be the beginning of another story, right? That will never end, never. Okay, so that was the introduction. Now let's get into some of the questions regarding heaven. First of all, what about our resurrected bodies? Will we really receive them? Or are we just going to live forever as a bodiless soul? Some say we can't live in a body in heaven because the body is evil. Well, who created the body? Who created man? Body, soul, and spirit. God did. And when he did, what did he say? It was very good. Everything he created, he said, was very good. They were Body and soul were perfect. But, of course, along with man's fall, the body and the soul became imperfect, marred by sin. Since the wages of sin includes both spiritual and physical death, you know, Adam and Eve immediately died spiritually. They no longer had a relationship with God. He, he took care of that, but they were separated spiritually from God. They also began the dying process. So the wages of sin include spiritual death and physical death. So Christ had to die to redeem us fully, body and soul. He had to die both physically and spiritually to fully redeem man. And did he? How, we know he died physically. And if, if you have doubt about it, get my resurrection reality series. We gave two lessons on that, that he really did die and he really did resurrect, and there is so much proof of that. He died bodily on the cross, and he also died spiritually. And how do we know he died spiritually, that he was separated from God? You remember that cross saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That was his separation. He endured a separation of eternity from God the Father in those three hours because he is eternity and to be separated from eternity is to spend separation of eternity and that goes beyond what we can understand. But he died for us spiritually and physically. Um, also, let's see, where was I? Um, and he did so because the ultimate divine promise of our heavenly state is both a perfected body and soul. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul spoke, see if I'm on the right one, he spoke of our resurrected glorified bodies as being an essential part of our redemption. And he severely re rebuked anyone who questioned that reality by calling them a fool. That's pretty strong, isn't it? If they doubted the, the physical resurrection, the bodily resurrection, Paul is usually very polite. You know, he says, I like this. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. <laughs> Isn't that nice? But here he says, they're fools. Christ is called the first fruit. You know what that means? The first fruit of the resurrection means there are more to come. More resurrections to come. In fact, Sunday afternoon after his resurrection, there were some right away. People came out of their graves. That was a really strange thing, but it happened. Paul wrote this. He said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen and our faith is in vain. 
If Christ didn't rise, we might as well pack up and go home. Because we're all yet dead in our sins, and uh, those who have already died have perished. You'll never see him again. So it's foolish to believe that. It is foolish to believe that. And call yourself a Christian. I mean, anybody can believe anything they want. But he did rise, and we will too. Well, what will our resurrected bodies be like? Well, first of all, we need to understand that death is merely a relocation of the same person from one place to another. The place changes, the person does not change. Except (laughs) without all the limitations and imperfections of this life. Uh, They will be, we will be, in our resurrected bodies, we will be immortal and we will be incorruptible. Paul explained that our resurrection bodies will be the same but different. And he used the analogy of of seeds and plants. I don't know, did I? I think I have to go back, there we go. Um, Seeds and plants. When a seed is planted into the earth, it looks like it's dead, doesn't it? And it's just a little hard thing or stone or whatever, it looks dead. And yet, miracle of miracles, there is a great mysterious metamorphosis coming, isn't there? I wonder what the first people that ever put a seed in the ground thought when all of a sudden something green started popping out of the ground from it. A new plant literally forms inside of that seed and eventually breaks through the dirt that covers it. You see, when we die, we're like a seed planted in the earth. We look dead. We look dead. Oh, really? Just our body is sleeping. And there is a great metamorphosis, a great transformation coming. Paul's divinely inspired analogy is telling us that our resurrection bodies will be of the same substance and the same essence as our current bodies. You see, when you plant a bean seed, you're not going to get a stalk of corn, are you? No. An apple seed will never produce an orange tree. The essence of who we are will remain throughout eternity, except exceedingly improved by the grace of God. Philippians 3.21 tells us that Christ's resurrected body was the prototype of ours. So we look at him to know, in his resurrection, to know what we will be like in our resurrected bodies. And even though he shocked his disciples at first when he, you know, appeared before them because nobody had ever resurrected from the dead before in a body, um, so they thought naturally that he was a ghost, didn't they? But he went on to prove to them that he had indeed risen bodily. He could be seen. He let them touch him. Um, he, he could uh, eat and drink even though he didn't have to to survive, but he could. He ate and drank with him. He walked with him. He talked with him. He was recognized by those who knew him before his death. He was very much like he had been before. But there were two things he could never, ever do again, suffer and die. His glorified human body. You know, he's the God-man forever. 
God and man forever. So his human glorified body was immortal. It could never die again. He came and suffered once for all. And our resurrection bodies will be like his. They'll be corporal, touchable, and recognizable. Um, And yet they will be incorruptible, never to die or suffer again. And they will be immortal. Incorruptible and immortal. Our resurrected bodies will never, ever know suffering, pain, or death. Hallelujah. The resurrected Lord, now he also did some extra... I mean, he did some, I guess what you could call, fourth dimensional things <laughs> in his resurrected bodies, uh, body. Uh, he could burst right through a massive tombstone. You know, the angel didn't open the tombstone so he could get out. He opened it so that the disciples could see in. He had already burst through that tombstone, and it was massive. He could walk through locked doors, as he did when he appeared in the upper room. He could defy gravity. His ascension, they were shocked. You know, just, can you imagine that? It's watching him lift up into the air. Um, now, I do have to say this. Although he was able to do those things in his resurrected body, doesn't mean we necessarily will be able to. After all, he's God. We are not. But I think, and we'll talk a little bit later about New Jerusalem, I think that we will be able to do some of those things, for sure. Now, many theologians believe that Adam, well, in terms of the spectrum of age, y'all wonder, what am I going to look like in heaven? I'm going to be the same me, but what, like, what age? When I die, am I still going to look like this, or what? (laughs) I want to go back to looking young again, don't you? Well, in, co- in terms of the spectrum of age, appearance, you know, we won't, we'll be ageless, but our appearance will probably, and this most Bible commentators go with this, will probably be, be around the age 30. And they say this for a number of reasons. It is one of the things I discuss in more details on those handouts that I gave to you, but there's some scripture to back that up. Adam and Eve were formed not as babies. When when God created them, they were fully mature and probably in their 30s, which was very young in that day because they lived to be so old, you know. But um, he told them to be fruitful and multiply, so they were old enough to bear children, and they were probably about in their 30s. Jesus, when he died, was 33, and when he returned, they all recognized him. So he wasn't an old man, was he? Or a baby again. He looked like he did, so he was 33-ish. And then there's other things, like the priests had to be the, they had to be 30, and King David was 30 when he started the king. We will be king, uh, kings and priests in heaven. So there's some support, so read that later on. For um, Does anybody have a problem with being 30? Probably only if you're 18 or something. (laughs) Uh, Now, another another thing about our resurrected bodies is that we will, ready for this? Retain the same gender (laughs) after death. The Lord Jesus did not reappear as a woman. You know, when Mary Magdalene thought he was the, the gardener, she, she called him sir, right? He appeared as a man, 
after his death and resurrection. Being a male or a female is part of who we are as a person. It is a God-created aspect of humanity that is very much a part of our nature and our personality. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Samuel, and others who were seen by men on earth after they died, they all retained their gender. The saints out of the graves on Resurrection Sunday after Christ, they, the people knew who they were. They retained their gender. So even if you change it in this life, you're going to get it back in the next life. God always gets the last laugh, doesn't he? <laughs> now, <laughs> some try to use Matthew 22, 30, where Jesus said there is no marriage in heaven. They try to use that to say we will be genderless in heaven. Is that what he said? That's not what he said. He merely said that, like the angels, there will be no marriage in heaven there won't be a need for Adam to have a help me there won't be any more reproduction because the number of humans will be forever fixed the woman won't need a protector and guess what else he is our eternal bridegroom there's no marriage now in heaven if it makes you sad to think that you're no longer going to be married to your spouse. Now, some of you are saying, 50 years. <laughs> 50 years with this guy is enough. I don't want to spend the time. <laughs> and some of you are really relieved because you're thinking, I wonder which one it'll be. <laughs> but if, if, you, if this kind of saddens you, there's no reason for despair about it. You're not only going to enjoy an eternally perfect companionship with your saved spouse or spouses <laughs> in the Lord, those who knew the Lord, but you're going to enjoy an eternal, eternally perfect companionship with every person ever who was saved by God's grace. And that is exciting. That is really exciting. And also, please, I said this in the angel study, but make sure you understand that people do not become angels when they die. No, no, no. After their own kind, after their own kind, angels are only spirit beings. We will be spirit and body. Babies, when they die, do not become little cherubs. Little fat, chunky cherubs with wings and harps. That's all just, no. However, we will live with them, with the angels, in our eternal existence. So we will also enjoy fellowship with them. That's exciting. Don't you want to get to know Gabriel and all the other angels who have names? Because God named every one of them. You know, the angels are unique. Everyone has angelic DNA. They're all different. I'd like to meet my guardian angel and say, boy, did I wear you out? <laughs> now, another very common heaven question, it, very common, is will we um, know our loved ones in heaven? 
And will we remember our earthly relationships? Here's the answer. Yes. Of course we will. You think we're going to be dumber up there than we are down here? We won't even need name tags up there. <laughs> In fact, we are even going to know people um, on earth from all generations back to Adam that we never met during this life. We're going to know them all. Remember when the Lord spoke, go back to this again, when the Lord spoke with Moses and Elijah, uh, Moses, by the way, represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Moses actually died physically, and there he is. Elijah was taken up in, you know, chariot and whirlwind and didn't die, but there he is, showing that, you know, everybody will be in heaven, all the law, the Old Testament prophets. When he unveiled, when the Lord unveiled his glory on the Mount of Trans Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were there, and they witnessed it, Right? They were not in resurrected, glorified bodies, were they? They were, and, and they, they didn't even have the whole picture because this is before the resurrection and those guys fumbled around and Peter had foot and mouth disease and all kinds of issues. They were just like us. And yet they knew the identity of those two Old Testament men even though they had died roughly 1,400 years and 1,000 years earlier. And they didn't have photography back in that day, so they didn't know what they looked like. And yet they knew who they were. Surely we are not going to have less recognition of people in heaven than those three guys did in their human bodies. Furthermore, the very nature of God's perfect love, which we will have, transcends death. Love transcends death. Yes, 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 we are going to know one another in heaven. It might take me a minute to realize it's you when you're only 30 years old, you know, and say, wow, did you have a facelift? You're going to say the same thing. <laughs> We're going to know one another. Our minds are going to be sharpened and enlightened, not dulled and darkened. Also, if we would not know our loved ones and friends and other brothers and sisters in Christ, the consolation of the great afterlife reunion that is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4, you know, the rapture verse, that, that great consolation would be terribly diminished. Yes, we'd see Christ, but we wouldn't have that great reunion with one another. That reunion, which is going to be so, when we're caught up together in the air and, we'll, you know, together, um, that is so sweet. It is what makes the temporary separation down here on earth bearable, doesn't it? You see, no relationship between believers on earth is ever going to end, ever. It's only interrupted. It is never terminated. And that is why Christians do not grieve as others who have no hope. There will be also marvelous diversity in heaven that will be forever in perfect harmony. We will not be identical cut-out robots in heaven. Yeah, he could have made us that way in this earth, right? Just automatic, we all look the same, 
there, I don't like that they're faceless, but that's how the picture was, you know, faceless robots who have to do his will and we have no choice in anything. We're not going to be like that in heaven. We're each going to attain, we're going to have our celestial DNA. Um, we're going to have our personality. We're going to have our gender. We're going to have our race. God is a God of diversity. Just take a look around you here in this room. Look at the world through a microscope or look at it through a telescope. One creator, but endless, endless diversity. You know, in John's vision of heaven, in Revelation chapters 5 and 7, he saw a people of every tribe, every nation, and every tongue worshiping the lamb. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Now, some of what is called diversity today is actually satanically inspired perversity. It's used to try to divide us instead of unify us. But diversity under Christ's lordship is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Does heaven operate outside the scope of time? Now here's one that might surprise you. But it is not the Bible but a very well-known hymn that says, and time shall be no more. What is that hymn? When the roll is called up yonder. There's another southern song, yonder, you know. When the roll is called up yonder and time shall be no more. That's from a hymn, not the Bible. We don't get our theology, as I said earlier, from songs from picture books, from man-made little inventions, from man-made religions. Where do we get our theology? This book right here, and only this book. Now, many have said there will be no time in heaven because of the words of Revelation 10.6, which says... There shall, be no time, there shall be time no longer. However, in the context of that verse, it is not about eternal heaven. It is about God's end time judgment. The literal Greek speaks of time in reference to the fact that there will be no further delay in the execution of God's judgment. Time no more, you know. It's time for his judgment. God, who, who created space, time, and matter? God did. Try, you know, this, this universe is just like him. It's a picture of him. Everything is triune. We, we did that in our Christ and Genesis study, and it's amazing. Space is made of three dimensions, time, past, present, future, matter. Uh, anyway, you go on and on. Everything is a triunity, just like God. But he is the creator of space, time, and matter, and all of which he declared to be what? Very good. They, when he created them, they predated sin and the curse. And when, when sin and the curse are completely gone, space, time, and matter will remain. And they will threaten us no longer. The days of our physical bodies will no longer be numbered, as it says in Psalm 90, 12. 
You know, we kind of look today as time as, as an enemy. Because, oh, I only got so much time. Well, before Christmas, I only got so much time to redeem my time before the Lord calls me home. But actually, time is not the enemy of man. The enemy of man is sin and death. Not time. The science of physics tells us that time is a property resulting from the existence of matter. And as such, then, time exists when matter exists. And the new earth is going to be a literal place, matter, in literal space. And thus, there will be time. Yeah. <laughs> Randy Elkhorn, who is the director of Eternal Perspectives Ministries and a prolific author about the subject of heaven, said that for us to say we will exist outside of time is like saying in heaven we will know everything. It's a confusion of eternity with infinity. We will live for eternity as finite beings. You know what a finite being is? We had a beginning. Angels are finite. They had a beginning. So we're going to live eternally as finite beings. God can, now he does live outside time. A day with him is like a thousand years. He can accommodate us by putting himself into time, which he literally did for 30 years. But we cannot accommodate him by becoming timeless. It's not in us to do so, even in our resurrected bodies, because we are not God. We are not infinite and eternal. It's the religion of Buddhism that actually teaches there's no resurrection and that time will be no more. Christianity, which is firmly based on resurrection, teaches that we will exist in resurrected bodies forever. Time, space, and matter will go on forever. Now, how could you have a new earth without matter? How could you have a new earth without space? And now, let me back all this up with scripture, okay? Because that's the important part. Scripture gives us evidence that there is the existence of time in heaven. In Luke 15, 7, we learn that heaven's inhabitants, along with the angels, rejoice every time a sinner repents and is saved. And that entails something happening in real time. Somebody gets saved down here and they rejoice, right? That's time connected. Then you have the tribulation martyrs, those who are going to be killed for their faith in Christ during the tribulation under the Antichrist, they are up there and they are told to wait a little longer when they ask the question, how long before Christ is going to judge them who killed them? Revelation 16.10. Now how could they ask how long and be told to wait a little longer if there is no time in heaven? Paul in Ephesians 2.7 spoke about the coming ages. That's plural. It involves ongoing time. In Revelation 8.1, we are told about a silence in heaven that lasts for 30 minutes. The tree of life on, on the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, 
is said to, it will bear its fruit every month. There are days and there are months referred to in both the heaven of today and the heaven of the future. And we'll talk about sun and moon later, okay? The book of Revelation. Oh my, if you go through the book of Revelation, it shows heaven's inhabitants operating within time. There is a clear sequence of events that take place chronologically, not all at once. You've got, you've got seal judgments being opened one by one. You've got trumpet judgments one by one. You've got bowl judgments one by one. Not everything happens at once, and that involves time. That would really be crazy, confusing. How could you even have a conversation? in heaven if there wasn't time because your conversation takes time to say and then you, they wait and then they answer. You get it? Um, and there, oh, here's one. There's going to be a lot of music in heaven. Heavenly music. Oh, there's heavenly music down here, isn't there? I think of the Alleluia Chorus and some of the, oh, they just get me almost every Sunday. Mary, did you know the choir just did that? And I'm crying. I love to listen. I can't sing, but I love music. There's going to be a lot of music in heaven, and music is related to time. You've got meters and tempo and rests and whole notes and half notes and quarter notes and eighth notes, etc., that, that signify holding a note longer than another note. And songs have a beginning and in middle, and in end, don't they? Which means they all take place in time. So, yes, there has to be time, and there's nothing evil about time, space, and matter. Now, in heaven, will we recall our earthly lives? This is among the most controversial of heaven-related questions. So, again, what I'm going to do is give you some scripture evidence to indicate that yes we will at least to some degree certainly not dwelling on the negative you know it even says in the bible forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to those which are ahead in heaven i believe that we will to some degree uh recall our earthly lives although I will leave the dogmatic answer to uh, share with you when I get there. Then I'll let you know, if I don't forget you <laughs> and who I am. <laughs> now, we're told that we will one day give an account of our lives on earth. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Matthew 12.30, we're going to give an account of our lives on earth. And that surely necessitates remembering them, doesn't it? If you get up there and you have memory swipe and he says, give an account of your life and go, blah, 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 blah. I don't know who I am and what I did and where I came from. And won't the various crowns and the ruling positions that we're given and the treasures that we receive in heaven uh, serve as reminders of our lives on earth? And also there are going to be the new Jerusalem memorials to the 12 tribes of Israel in the gates as well as to the apostles in the foundations. So why would that be if nobody has a remembrance of who they are or who the apostles of the 12 tribes were? And what about the saints of heaven singing about Christ's redemption for them? That certainly necessitates their remembrance of what he did for them 
And what about his resurrected body scars that he will have eternally? Aren't they the reminder of his redemptive work for us on earth? You see, memory is also a part of our personality. It's an ele a basic element of personality. If we are truly to be us, ourselves, in heaven, there must be some continuity of memory from earth to heaven. As I said earlier, we are not different people, but the same people marvelous, marvelously relocated and transformed. Our personalities, our character, our nature will be perfected, but not erased. If so, then all the lessons we learn down here about the person, the nature, the wondrous works, and the eternal word of God would be gone. And I don't think God wastes any learning based on his truth. Do you? Rather, I believe in heaven we're going to build on what we learn down here. Build on it and greatly expand it. Obviously, all erroneous learning down here will be corrected. All the wrong theology instantly corrected. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, the tribulation martyrs um, clearly remember their great suffering on earth. Um, in Luke 16, 25, we learn that believers who endured bad things are comforted in heaven. Uh, if there was no memory of things on earth, what would be the need for them to be comforted? It is the change in our perspective. It's seeing in heaven we're going to see everything as God sees it. And that will presumably negate any need for loss of memory. We'll have the mind of Christ. We'll see things as he sees them. And that will utterly change our perspective on what now brings us great sorrow. We will understand that our great God, the judge of all the earth, does what right? All things right. And he will, although he will eventually, he doesn't wipe away the tears until the new Jerusalem but he will eventually wipe away the tears and sorrow that are attached to this world. Yet I do not think that our joy in heaven is going to be the result of a memory swipe of what happened on earth. Some think that's the only way my tears are going to dry up, is if I can't remember anything that happened down here. A memory swipe of his great redemption work would rob him of the eternal glory that he is due. I believe our joy in heaven is going to be enhanced by our ever-growing appreciation of his glorious grace and his absolute justice for what he did allow to happen on earth. And I think we're going to spend eternity sharing our testimonies with one another and with all the saints of all the ages. That's one thing I also look forward to, besides beholding the Lord's face, hearing all your testimonies, hearing the testimonies of all the martyrs, hearing the testimonies of everyone who has ever lived. I love hearing testimonies about a new life in Christ, don't you? 
and time won't be a factor. We'll have all the time in the world when we go to Cracker Barrel to share our testimonies and we won't be on a time schedule. You know, you just sit there all day. Another question, are saints in heaven aware of what is going on here on earth? Are they up there aware of what we're doing down here? Now again, I'm going to present to you, because I don't want to say anything wrong. Um, and if I do, if I make you mad, I'm doing the best I can, because I have never been to heaven. <laughs> um, but I'm basing what I say on scripture. So let me just give you a few scripture passages, and then you can answer this question for yourself. Are saints in heaven aware of what's going on down here? Well, in Revelation 18.20, um, when Babylon, you know, the great harlot, the, the, the mother of, well, what is she called? Mother of abominations, that represents the world system called Babylon. When she is brought down, the, an angel points to the events down on earth, and he says, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints, apostles, and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. That Babylon is the world system under Satan. Saints, apostles, prophets. Saints is every So obviously they know Babylon has just fallen. Well, in Revelation 19, saints in heaven observe and they shout hallelujah, hallelujah to what is happening on earth. Um, and also in that same chapter, when the saints, which will include the church age saints, us, return with Christ to set up his earthly kingdom here on earth, don't you think it would be rather strange that we're accompanying him down here for the kingdom if we don't have a clue at all as to the magnitude of that event? I can't imagine that. And again, go back to the transfiguration of Christ. Um, Moses and Elijah were obviously aware of the historical magnitude of what was happening on earth as they were speaking to him about his death, his upcoming death, his exodus, and what was going to then happen in, Jer in Jerusalem. We'll read about that in Luke 9.31. So... Um, Maybe they just have a really fair and balanced TV station up there that tells them, you know, everything that's going on on earth. But they are aware. They are aware. And I don't think, I mean, this is just me speaking, okay, this is not dogmatic, but I don't think it's like they're hovering over watching everything you do. But I think that they have, because we didn't have that advantage, you know, when they, before they went to heaven, watching over them. We hear their testimonies through scripture, et cetera, but most of them we don't. But I don't think it's what they're watching you day and night, but I think they have a good awareness of what in general is happening down here on earth. After all, there are many clear indications that the angels know what is happening on earth, so why not the saints? Don't redeemed humans in heaven have as much vested interest, if not more, in the events that are happening here as the angels do? And who else is watching and involved way too much in what is going on here? The fallen angels. So if they have that privilege, obviously the saints in heaven do.
Will we continue to learn in heaven? Ephesians 2 says, In the coming ages, God will show us the incomparable riches of his grace. There will be continual learning of him in heaven. I believe that with all my heart. And, that, and he is inexhaustible. So it will take eternity to learn about him. There is no end to learning about him. We're going to progress in knowledge, and yet we will never be all-knowing. We'll never be all-knowing. You know, it says we'll have the mind of Christ, but we, we'll think like him, we'll see things like him, but we will never be him. Only God is omniscient, and we will never be God. Don't believe any religion that says we become gods, little gods or whatever. We will never be God. Um, and knowing everything, not knowing everything, is not a flaw. It's not a flaw. It's not a sin not to know everything. It's part of being finite. As I said, we will be eternal. Actually, if you have Christ in your heart, you already are eternal. You already have eternal life. But we will never, ever be infinite. We had a beginning. Only God is both infinite and eternal. Even the holy angels long to know more, don't they? According to 1 Peter 1.12. And, and they are flawless. But they, like us, are also finite. They had a beginning. Well, the Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, I'll close with this, who intense, you know, he's the one, sinners in the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards, um, very famous preacher. He intensely studied the subject of heaven, and he said this. He said, the saints will be progressive in knowledge to all eternity. After all, who put the thirst for knowledge and understanding and beauty in us? Who put that in us? He did when he created us. Now, the idea of working in heaven, you know, not just strumming the harp on a cloud. You know how boring that would get pretty soon. <laughs> but the, the idea of work in heaven is foreign to many people. But it shouldn't be. When God created Adam, he took the man, and what did he do? He put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. Work is a good thing, tell the next generation. Work is healthy. <laughs> it's an important part of a perfect human life. I don't know what boredom is. I, I do not know what boredom is, but I don't think I would like it. I like to be busy. I like to work. It fulfills me. God himself didn't just create the world and then sit back in retirement, did he? If he did for one second, guess what? This whole world would implode because he holds all things together. We will have work to do in heaven according to Revelation 22.3, and it is going to be deeply satisfying, enriching work. It will never be dull, never be boring, never be tiring, and it all will be to bring glory to our great creator, redeemer, God. Amen? Do you look forward to heaven? Have you made your reservation? Do you know the password? The password is Jesus. Do you have that? Do you know that? Are you saved? New ladies, 
If you would like to know more about Jesus Christ and salvation, having a personal relationship with him, circle the yes on your card and I'll contact you or come see me. My husband has a little Gideon Testament to give you if you'd like to receive him today. I don't want anybody to leave this sanctuary, just for our break, but don't leave now because you're offended, um, without knowing for sure when somebody says, are you going to heaven? You can say, absolutely, positively, sure, I am going to heaven. I have, you know, John wrote in um, 1 John 5, 13, he said, I wrote all this under divine inspiration so that you can know. You know, there's some religions that say, well, nobody can know. You can't, you can't boast and say you know. Yes, you can. You can know. He says, I knock on the door. If you open the door, I will come in. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What is one thing he cannot do? Lie. I didn't understand it when I first got saved, but I listened to those people. The word of God pierced my heart, and I said, okay, if that's what it takes. Jesus, I am a sinner. I repent of my sin. Please open the door to you. Come in and save me. And that night, I was a new creature. The sky looked different. Everything looked different. I was born again. I don't know how that works, but I know it did. And I don't want you to leave without knowing Jesus. Okay? We're going to have a little break. Let me have a prayer and then explain what you can do during the break. Okay? Father God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the attentiveness of your people. Bless them. Put a hedge of protection around them in their lives. But most of all, Lord, lead any lost soul here to you today. It is not anything she will ever regret for eternity if she accepts you. You say, come unto me, all ye labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and that is your eternal rest. And you'll give us that peace that passes understanding and the joy unspeakable, and nothing can ever rob us of our joy again not Satan, not man. We can overcome all the circumstances in this world because we reckon that the, the sufferings of this world are not even to be compared to the glory that you have in store for each of us. Heaven is a real place, and I pray that everyone here will go there. For as he sings in Jesus' name, amen.